Um, just before we start, on behalf of Cathy and Victoria here, and Charlie, and indeed all of us, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land upon which we are meeting, the people of the Kulin Nations, and we must pay our respects to their elders past and present. And of course, tonight we'd also like to acknowledge Paris, the terrible attacks that occurred in Paris, and violence where it occurs against innocent people all around the planet. Um, this is a question of our common humanity. It's a question of humanity without borders. And in some strange way, I think the, the global response that is needed for the sorts of issues that are being faced in Paris at the moment are similar to those which we need for climate change and in that it requires a global uh, agreement um, on these really difficult issues. So our thoughts are with Paris and in fact at the moment there's a, a vigil going on at Federation Square um, which I'm told is really well attended and that's, that's great to hear. So coming up in Paris in a couple of weeks is a big meeting called COP21. Uh, it's the Conference of the Parties. It's the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. It's really the biggest uh, discussion around an agreement on what we can do globally on climate change. And there are all sorts of parties which will attend this conference. And Paris, as it turns out, is going to be a really important conference uh, for the framework and for the, the planet. And we're very lucky to have here with us tonight um, two people who like me, will be attending Paris um, in different capacities uh, to give our input into those discussions and negotiations. Um, at the far end of the wooden box here, we've got Victoria Mackenzie-McHarg. Victoria is the Climate Change Campaign Manager at the Australian Conservation Foundation, uh, which is Australia's peak and leading environment uh, organisation. Um, Victoria was pre previously at Environment Victoria, where she led uh, the Safe Climate Campaign. And there's not many people who know more about campaigning on environmental issues and especially on climate change issues. So we'll, um, we'll hear something from Victoria in a moment and it will be very interesting and pertinent. <laughs> we also have um, Councillor Cathy Oak here in the centre. Cathy is a Melbourne City Councillor. She's Chair there of the Future Melbourne Transport Committee. She's Deputy Chair of the Future Melbourne Environment Committee. She's also chair of ICLE, which is an amazing uh, international organisation made up of city councils uh, and which devote their time to looking at environmental issues. Um, it's in fact the world's leading association of cities and local governments dedicated to sustainable development. So Cathy will be attending the Paris uh, conferences, um, the conference uh, on behalf of the city of Melbourne. So we will hear some very interesting things there. Maybe, Victoria, first you could give probably a much more nuanced and detailed description of the Paris um, conference and how that's come about. Where, where do we, why are we going to Paris at all? Mm, sure, sure. Um, I mean, at the highest, at the highest level, um, this is the space where the world comes together and decides what we're going to collectively do about climate change. Uh, knowing that this is a problem, a wicked problem that no one uh, entity can deal with, um, and within that are a, a range of complex problems. Um, top 
of the list of priorities for us and usually top of the list of priorities for the COP for this process of bringing the parties together is the need to cut pollution. We know that that's fundamental to dealing with climate change um, and that sounds really obvious but actually within this space there's a lot of nuance and a lot of debate about how that happens across countries, um, how we account for our pollution, uh, how we how we measure and trade off in, in the different sectors that are that are accountable for that. What's the different responsibility of different countries based on our historical emissions or based on our ability to afford the transformation or based on our current levels of pollution? And there's a lot of um, a lot of consequences from these decisions because it plays out in the way um, both countries are impacted by climate change. Uh, one of the things that gets discussed is adaptation measures and how we will support different countries uh, through the transition as, as climate change starts to impact more. Uh, but at the other end of the scale, there's very serious economic consequences uh, for those uh, nation states whose economies are very heavily dependent on either the use of fossil fuels or logging, which is one of the other big con contributors to uh, emissions, uh, or for nation states who hope to be or, or may have hoped to become dependent on fossil fuels, particularly in developing, developing nations where they are discovering new reserves. Uh, and so so what we've got is a very complex international problem where the problem is, is one of the commons and therefore we need a common solution that supports us all through what, that process. What's, what's the commons? Our atmosphere is our commonly owned good, I suppose, or service, however, I'm straight away slipped into economic, economic use of, which is <laughs> appalling for an environmentalist to have done. Uh, but uh, it's, it's something that we collectively own um, and we collectively have responsibility for. But in that, in that collectivism is always, it's also the other extreme in that no one owns and no one is responsible for. And it's, um, it, it's through that that we've arrived at these sorts of challenges. Mm -hmm. So how do we now collectively come together to, to take this on? The good news is we have collectively stood up and said we want to do this. And there are 190 countries as parties to the COP. So the COP is um, simply conference of parties and parties is just a fancy word for country. Uh, so there's 190 countries that are a part of it. Uh, and 190 countries have all agreed uh, that we need to limit pollution uh, in line with a maximum global temperature increase of two degrees. And now the challenge is how do we get there? Thank you. So we've got all of these governments going, so that must be nearly every country on the mm -hmm. planet mm -hmm. um, attending. And then, Cathy, you're going uh, as part of a delegation from the City of Melbourne. So cities are, does this mean that cities are attending in their own right? How does that feed into the, the conference? In many ways. Um, cities have um, played a strong role at, at the UN climate conferences for many years. Um, since 2007 in Bali, um, city organisations like ICLE, and I'd like to acknowledge Steve Gawler is here as the regional director of ICLE Oceania. It is a, an international organisation. Um, but there are other city organisations like C40 and UCLG and everyone, all of the cities around the world that are committed to reducing um, their footprint, to committing, committing their cities for action on climate change, whether it's through mitigation or adaptation, adaptive measures. Um, they've all made commitments regardless of the countries that they're from and, and we've seen too often and even still um, that many cities are actually committing a lot more resources and energy and, and policy um, towards 
acting on climate change in spite of the nations that they're from. And so it's been a really important process that cities have played um, and been on um, at the various COPs every year um, in letting the nations know that not only uh, is it this ready, mobilised force of cities and the people that are from these cities ready to act, but that we should be seen as a genuine partner. And um, it's been a, a long process, and it's called a roadmap. We hate that term, but you know, it's a roadmap for climate change um, from local government, and it's a. Um, it's been a long process to not only get cities recognised as an actual player in this space, um, as, as Victoria said, we're talking about nations talking at the table and it's nations who are making the commitments, but cities and, and other um, non-state actor or non-country um, actors have got a huge role to play and I know that we'll talk about all the other you know, people that will be there and all the other voices that are in, in um, in Paris mm. trying to make their voice heard but from a city's perspective we're saying we're there we're ready to commit we already have I think on the table I think uh, someone will have to explain to me what it is at one gigaton of um, carbon reduction measures on the table by cities so you know we're there saying we are ready to reduce um, our carbon footprint and so work with us to make it happen and and cities I, I don't know the statistics and I don't like asking questions, but I th that I don't know the answer to. But I think cities, you know, uh, the number of people who live in cities now is very high. Eighty percent of the world's population. Yeah, every, in yeah. Urban environments are, uh, are where people live, <coughs> and and this is where the the not only are the issues being um, manifested, but also where the opportunities lie. And I guess the city of Melbourne, we like to think that we're doing a lot. Um, with the levers that we have or with the, the resources that we have. And it's really important that we're there in Paris or through these processes supporting the other cities who would also like to act but may not have the means. And that um, Victoria mentioned the other mechanisms that are being negotiated at the conference of the parties at the COP and, that, and one of those is the green finance mechanism and having the cities being able to play a role or, or having a part in where that money goes is really important. Well, cities really yeah. need, are responsible for implementing a lot of the action that will come out in terms of practical terms. But as so it often have very little say in yeah. what those yeah. uh, those projects yeah. might be. Yeah. Yeah. Victoria, you're, so you're going as part of the, the NGO or non-government organisation group, which is a very large group, and you're going on behalf of the Australian Conservation Foundation. So I assume there will be lots of NGO groups in Paris, how do they play a role feeding into what's going on in the in the inner sanctum of the negotiations? Mm. It's a really interesting question and there's lots of different ways that groups handle that from, from different areas. I guess um, before launching straight into that, there's a broader context in which we see the COP and the negotiations and what's actually negotiated matters. It, it, really matters and uh, will have a very big impact and and a lot of our organisations really want to focus on that. So they will spend time um, actually speaking with the delegations. Uh, so we would meet every morning and I'll meet every morning uh, with other NGOs from around the world to get a political um, assessment of what's happened overnight and the day before. We'll then have a strategy session um, first thing for the Australian organisations and then we will be meeting with the delegations and the negotiators um, from Australia uh, putting forward, you know, we're very concerned about this issue or, uh, well, the Brazilians aren't going to respond very well to this and giving the, the perspective from the not-for-profit sector. Um, 
and that's that is a very effective use of that. But why co COP is one step in the process? It in and of itself, that agreement doesn't deliver anything. As Cathy mentioned, what matters is then what you do back at home. And so it's then the action of governments uh, and other actors there to come back and implement the policies that are going to cut the pollution and create that economic transformation back here in Australia that mm. really matters. And so for a group like the ACF, that's really where we see our core role is, is firstly um, putting up the voice of, of NGOs and of civil society into the negotiation to make sure that's being considered by the negotiators and the delegates. Uh, but secondly, holding our government to account on that. Uh, there are expectations from our community, um, not just from civil society, but from business and from investors as well, uh, as to what our government should be agreeing to that will enable um, investment to kickstart back at home. Uh, so that'll be really core for us. And then also translating that story back here to the Australian public, to our supporters and to the broader media, um, both for accountability, but also... Um, to build a stronger sense of understanding about what is actually happening. Out of Copenhagen, uh, for anyone who's followed these processes, there was uh, a very large, these negotiations happen every year. This is the 21st year, that's the other part of the title, COP21, uh, so that's, that's how we're here. Uh, there was, the last really big one of these was in Copenhagen in 2009. And disaster is a strong word. Um, and I, I wouldn't say it was a disaster, but many would. Um, we did get the agreement to two degrees, limiting to two degrees out of that, and we did get 190 countries signed on, which is actually a pretty phenomenal outcome. But our political leaders came back to Australia with a story that it had failed. The media ran a story that it had failed, and the political will for action evaporated overnight. It was gone. That is not the case this time. Even if, and I don't believe that this will fail, the, the French government has done a phenomenal job of actually shepherding this mm. process through and, and bringing so many countries on board. I mean, my understanding also is that this time all of the countries are going there with their targets, if you like, right, um, pre-published so yes. that everyone knows what everyone else is bringing. That's right. And have pretty much agreed to that, whether they're good or bad. And we might talk about what Australia is taking and whether that that is open to some improvement. But um, so that provides some level of, op of optimism that it's not going to be a surprise Absolutely. to that extent. Absolutely. And, and so we do feel there'll certainly be an agreement. It might not be everything we want, but there'll be an agreement. Um, but that's, that's only one part of the puzzle. What we're also going to see out of COP is some of the biggest announcements on from the invest the investment sector cannot wait to move. They are dragging governments, kicking and screaming to the table here. Uh, they're ready to go. They just need the signals. They need to know where, who, which governments are really going to support it and really open up the opportunities. And and they'll go. So we'll see some very big investment announcements. We'll see very big announcements from business uh, about the commitments that they're prepared to make. Um, to be part of this of this transformation, we'll see those announcements from subnational governments, so state governments. Um, the Premier of South Australia will be speaking uh, and leading at one of the general assemblies. Uh, the cities platform is really moving. Cities are absolutely out there on the edge. 
they're dealing with the impacts of climate mm, change mm. in a way that federal governments mm, don't. Mm. Uh, when there's heat waves, it's cities that are responding to elderly people dying in their homes. And uh, when there's droughts, it's it's cities who are having to work out how are we providing for our for our population. Or, or, or the, mayor, or the mm. mayor of Vanuatu, or, yeah. or you know, yeah. dealing with sea level rise. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, Cathy, on that investment um, question, you know, the city of Melbourne spends a lot of money each year, um, both in terms of its infrastructure and the maintenance of its gardens, but also in terms of its investments and where it puts its money. And I read recently the City of Melbourne has actually decided to no longer invest in companies which have a direct tie-in with fossil fuel um, production and exploration. Now, importantly, we've never, we never did have investments, but we never have a policy saying that in the future we wouldn't invest. Um, so it was important, but what I think was good about the, the motion that was unanimously supported at the City of Melbourne a couple of weeks ago was that we looked at where we do have strong financial um, commitments. Um, some we don't, you know, we can't, we don't have full ownership of, but people's superannuation obviously is a big area, so we made a commitment to... Um, to ask Vision Super, the provider at this, uh, for the City of Melbourne, um, to actually provide a, a divested solution to our met uh, to their members, to our members, but also to um, when we look at the service agreement for our everyday transactional banking account, that there will be a survey for anyone that wants to put in an application to, to provide our daily banking to, uh, you know, where are they investing and, and what their views are on divestment. And, and, and that will play a, play a, a significant part in the decision yeah. that is made next one. So and it is in important. the grand scheme of things, it mightn't be an enormous amount of money, but symbolically, it's it's really important and it's something which people then stand up and take notice Yeah, notice and I think of. what I like... The, what the city of Melbourne, I think, has done really well because we're off. We asked to take part in a lot of initiatives, and um, and what I like about the city of Melbourne's approach is that we do think about what's what can we actually achieve um, rather than just yep. you know a statement yep. saying we will be 100% renewable. Say and. We can't say we're 100% renewable when we're a you know a municipality where we don't really have a huge uh, you know huge ability for renewables yet. Um, yes, there was a great project that was announced last week, looking at all of the roofs in our mm. municipality and whether they could have a green roof or a white roof or a solar panel um, array on the roof, and a great project, and it opens up that that the conversation with every building owner, property owner in the City of Melbourne about the, the potential that they can play. And, and the reality is that we can't have 100% renewables sure. in the City of Melbourne until we can either get off the brown coal um, electricity grid or have large-scale investment in renewable energy, which we're working on, but we don't, you know, we can't say we're 100% renewable yet, but... But those sorts of, of, of practical solutions and, and implementation, are they the sorts of things that you will also discuss with other cities um, from around the world as to what have they done in this situation and how can we, how can well, we share that knowledge? No, absolutely. And um, in Paris, there's a, a, a range of activities that cities will be taking part in and not only will we'll also be having our daily meetings um, with whichever nations we can round up to talk about you know, their commitment to cities as a, as a partner and their commitment to, um, to reducing their impact um, on, on the environment. But we'll also be um, having a, an event in the green zone, as it is, right next door to the blue zone, where all the negotiations, are, where the, the agreements are taking place. But we'll have, I think there's 100 and 
actually, I'm going to, I'm not sure how many now, but there's a lot, a lot. of cities, <laughs> a lot of cities display, you know, talking about what they're doing. And it's a great learning yeah. um, space for not only for other cities that are in attendance, but for all of the um, people that are in yeah. attendance. So. Victoria, on the, on the finance side, the money side, mm -hmm. I mean, often um, those who, who say that this is all too difficult, say that it's just too expensive, it's going to cost too much money um, to make the changes that we need to, to make. I've also read recently some figures around how much money we spend on supporting, for example, the fossil fuel industry, not only in Australia, but worldwide. Mm. Are those sorts of sums, the sorts of quantities that we need to, to move over and is, is the, the sorts of decisions that the City of Melbourne is making showing how we can make those moves? If we want to do this, money is not an issue. Money is not the problem. Technology is not the problem. We have all of the financial ability and all of the technological ability to sort this out if we want to. Uh, what we've got is a, a shortage of political will and and that's full stop really is the is the end of the story. Uh, so how do we and I guess the, on the finance on the finance question it's there's two sides and um, yes there's a lot of money in fossil fuel subsidies a lot of money and here in Australia um, our federal government gives 10 billion dollars a year as subsidies to fossil fuel companies um, and yeah, billion or million billion billion, billion yep uh, that's that's just federally that's not including then state subsidies uh, on top of that um, and that's a that's a heck of a lot of cash in Australia as, as compared to renewables what sort of support is that uh, renewables, uh, we don't actually have an annual figure right. on renewables. Um, we do have a couple of really good bodies that have been established recently, um, Clean Energy Finance Corporation and ARENA that have funding. Unfortunately, um, the funding has just been cut uh, quite significantly uh, for ARENA and um, the CEFC, uh, was, uh, their funding was legislated uh, and the former Abbott government was unable to get that through the Senate. Uh, and, and this government, uh, the Turnbull-led government, looks less likely to, that they're wanting to kill off that, that sort of investment. Um, there's a lot of public finance that could immediately be redirected uh, into, um, into clean energy technologies, into adaptation policies, into... I mean, there are, there are places in Australia that will be very impacted. Um, uh, I apologise to anybody who's here from Point Lonsdale, but you wouldn't be buying property down there <laughs> with a long-term... Not uh, close to the beach. Not, not close to the beach or the inlet. Um, you know, we have... The Victorian government has maps to show where sea level rise is going to be uh, most impacting in a 20-year time horizon and uh, yeah you wouldn't be making long-term property investments in a lot of these areas and that will have beyond obviously those sorts of impacts that will have a lot of impacts on infrastructure for um, our cities and and how how we operate uh, so there's money needed in these sorts of programs um, so there's savings to be made as well hmm. there are even within the city of Melbourne where we've invested large amounts of money in say a water saving projects Again, you don't want to necessarily talk about the economic benefits, but they've, they've been made in knowing that we'll, there's a 10 to 15 year payback because of the water savings that we'll achieve through um, storing the water underground then rather than paying for potable water, which we know will most likely increase in price mm. in the future. And likewise with our renewable projects, 
through energy performance contracts, through the money that we're investing in retrofitting our buildings where we can pay that back through savings on our energy bills. And I think there's a big split there um, in between what is public finance and private finance, um, both in terms of so who's spending and who's benefiting, and that's one of the the key challenges in in many of the programs we're talking about domestically. As far as the COP is concerned, um, I mentioned earlier that targets to cut pollution is one of, and cutting pollution is sort of number one. Number two is climate finance, recognising that there are um, many countries around the world who will be directly impacted and already are being directly impacted by climate change who simply do not have the financial resources to cope with that, but who also don't have the financial resources to restructure their economies. Uh, And we have a common interest in actually assisting to make that happen. So climate, it's what we call climate finance, is one of the biggest topics of conversation at this point. And COP. did I read that Australia has put its hand up to head, head the, uh, the climate Co-chair. bank? Yes. Or what did we call it? Yes. yes. Yes, this was a body that um, our government strongly opposed, uh, and we unfortunately we have there's a global target that is written into the agreement to have 100 billion dollars a year annually in climate finance by the year 2020. We're up to about 62 billion, so we're, it, it's actually moving for that 2020 target. The big fight uh, at COP this year will be around the 2030 target. Um, developing countries and the G- G77 uh, want to see another firm number and developed countries like Australia do not want to make commitments. Um, It's been a struggle, to be honest, to get developed countries, um, and particularly Australia. We have been a laggard on this topic. Uh, After a lot of international diplomacy and campaigning last year, uh, the Abbott government committed uh, $200 million over four years to the program. which uh, comparatively is just nowhere near where we need to be. Um, We're we're needing to get to around a billion dollars a year from Australia for it to be an equitable uh, contribution. So it makes sense to me a lot of what you're saying. In Paris, there's the NGOs, there's the cities, there's the governments. I'll talk about me at the moment (laughs) in a minute, but who else is there arguing against this? Are Are there other players in the tent, in the room, who are, you know, arguing against what you're saying? There certainly are. And who are they? Mm, well, thank you for asking, Guy. <laughs> uh, Dorothy's my name. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, there, unfortunately there are. There are a lot of interests who have been um, actively slowing the process who are there, um, and that's in the form of a, a handful of big polluting energy companies. Um, we, see, we see some pretty um, aggressive lobbying by nation states and by companies involved in logging and land use as well. That's a, it's a very hot-button issue. But the real crux of it comes down to energy companies, uh, coal, oil and gas. And uh, those companies have a very, very um, big agenda and a lot of influence. Uh, they sponsor the COP. Um, a company called Energy, uh, who in Australia are called GDF Sewers and own Hazelwood Power Stations, the dirtiest power station in Australia. Uh, they're sponsoring the talks uh, and they will have um, influence right throughout the talks. Um, we've heard of instances of uh, a handful of companies, their um, staff actually uh, being with the negotiators uh, and uh, sitting in the room at times. Uh, and uh, at the COP last year, our uh, minister, our trade minister, when uh, he fi- they finally 
agreed to go, uh, flew over um, side by side with BHP Billiton. Um, they flew together with their staff, they spent the COP together and they flew back home together. Mm -hmm. uh, the level of influence of these companies is, is very large and very significant. And so that's, I suppose, why it's important to have the counterbalance of civil society, of cities, of all sorts of other organisations um, being there. Absolutely. And we are seeing... Uh, Australia has had a much more vexed public political debate than uh, almost any other country. Uh, here in the US uh, is really where we have a debate that exists in the way it has here with a voice of uh, climate deniers and, and a voice of big polluting entities having a very disproportionate impact. Um, but that's actually, that's the ground is really shifting there. And I think there's a perception um, in decision makers that this is still a vexed issue in the public. And we see even in the public, our polling shows us um, in general, in the public, people think that 50% of people are not concerned about climate change. In fact, 80% of people are concerned about climate change. 65% of them, 65% very concerned. Only 8% of the population uh, are not concerned or, de or deny that there is a problem. But our perception, uh, largely because of, of media coverage of the issue, that that is much bigger, allows essentially allows our politicians off the hook. We collectively say, well, I guess if 50% of people aren't concerned, this is pretty tough. I guess it's okay they're not acting. Uh, whereas, in fact, that's, that's a, a perception issue that we have. So there's been big shifts in that space here in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, maybe I should throw out to see if there's anyone who has questions at this stage about the COP process or the uh, attendance of Australian Conservation Foundation, the City of Melbourne. I suppose most, most of you are Melbournians, so you have some stake in this. Does Melbourne, does Melbourne, yeah, go on. Oh, no, I wanted to ask a question, no. You wanna, no, no, uh, I, d I guess I wanted to, you know, I'm sitting here and actually it's a really beautiful outlook and mm. I can see the M Pavilion. Oh, goodness, says my daughter just fell off. You all right, Charlie? She seems yep, to be all smiling. right. Yep, good one. Phew, okay, sorry about that. As I look out here and I see this beautiful view and as I was going to say, I was just looking at the M Pavilion box that I know Rob told me on Saturday night is their nice way of covering up the relatively ugly metre boxes and I can see, yes, you've made a vast improvement. Um, but I was, I guess I was sitting here reflecting on why we're here tonight and why we're at this space and um, in talking about tonight it was, I guess it was important to have this conversation, I think, in a space like M Pavilion where there are a lot of talks about architecture and design and, and the artist's response to our city and, you know, how we design spaces for people. And I know that Guy, well, Guy has run a very successful and now a an, an multi-award winning um, event that you can talk about. <laughs> um, but, uh, and I'm also involved in, a, in another organisation called Tipping Point um, and it's um, all about the artistic response to climate change and... And I guess, yeah, I, I think it's just a, a conversation that either people can provide comments from the audience or comments from, from the two of you, but mm. that I think it's really important that it's not just about scientists or government or, or politicians talking about climate change. It's about everyone talking about what their role or their commitment is to making a difference. And I know for someone who is a scientist and, and a background in data and needing to talk about things quite literally, I find it quite difficult to talk about the emotional connection that we have to nature and the emotional connection to space and I've always been very relieved when I get to hang out with very creative people like Guy or, or other artists um, in and talking about how we can better communicate to 
Melburnians to, to the general public to you know, how we can better communicate the problems that we're facing and, and come up with better solutions because I think that we're still talking about solutions maybe because we haven't talked about it um, in, the, in the most appropriate way. So I'd well, love to hear yeah. about what you are. There is an art cop going right. on in Paris and there is a small version happening in Melbourne and um, at the North Melbourne Town Hall. But I would love to know what, yeah, what you think the, the importance of artists culture. Mm. and culture mm. and, and I guess a space like this having, having this conversation tonight. Well, I think, you know, we think that culture... So we ran a festival here in April, May called Art Plus Climate Equals Change. Here in Melbourne, we had 25 exhibitions and 45 public programs looking at the role that the arts can play in engaging people, inspiring them uh, and motivating them to act on issues like climate change. And what we recognise is that we, we have the data. We've had the data for 20, 25 years, 30 years maybe. We actually have the technical and policy solutions and what we need is something to bridge that gap, um, to create the empathy, if you like, people's uh, relationship to the place they live in, the people they live with, uh, to our common humanity, to actually act on the knowledge that they have. And the arts is really a fabulous way of, of engaging that. So in uh, Paris, there is, as you mentioned, a sort of a, I was gonna say an antidote, it's not really the antidote, but it's a, a corollary to the COP negotiations is Art COP 21. So there are cultural events taking place all over Paris, um, looking at the relationship between the arts and climate change, between the arts and environmental issues. Uh, they range from an amazing light show, which is going to light up the Eiffel Tower with vines and things growing up it, which I've seen a preview of, it looks yeah. amazing. Um, we're taking over, we're actually exhibiting there a film, a digital film by an artist named Debbie Simons, looking at uh, what will happen to species and habitat on the planet as the earth warms over the next century um, and that's going to be projected 24 hours a day over a month in Paris. Um, so there re really is a, 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 a realisation that that sort of, I suppose it's a cultural ether we all sort of swim in. Um, sometimes not, we're not aware of it but the, the way we look at things is often influenced by the images, the sounds, the music, the stories that we hear. So it's a very important part of getting people to understand that this is a, an important program. We're really thrilled to be, to be going and doing our little bit to try and push things along. I was going to ask Cathy just one more question just about Melbourne. The, the influence of, for example, the city of Melbourne, which does have some fantastic policies in this area, how, does, how do you work with our state government and our federal government in terms of talking about you know, what you're doing and what they might do. What sort of negotiations take place there? In general or in COP? No, well, I well, mean, just like general, yeah, I'm just, every, yeah. I mean, every city that is attending COP 21, their role with respect to their nation, you know, their governments that are attending is to try and make sure that they're aware of the importance to cities and the important role that cities play. So we'll be all trying to have that, that discussion with our, um, with our governments, but it's the, the conversation at home again. It's you know depending on which government is in power, right, which we, where we are at within um, Victoria or within Australia, the conversation that the city of Melbourne ha has changes all the time, and whether we uh, you know we have had significant investment um, in many of our water saving projects from a federal and a state level. Um, but the, the investment in our renewable energy projects or our, you know, our commitments to trying to reduce our carbon footprint have been you know, somewhat varied over, over the years. Um, we had a, 
um, you know, a, a good success, a good story with the state government is that they adopted our legislation um, that has allowed us to accelerate the retrofitting of our old building stock in the city of Melbourne. For us to actually enact our, the innovative finance mechanism that would allow um, ratepayers in a building to pay back loans that would um, re retrofit the buildings for um, better air conditioning or um, for a, a greater water saving measures within their buildings, um, we needed to change the legislation. So we did have to have that conversation with the state government and they actually had to pass that to allow us to be effectively acting like a bank. Um, that legislation is now rolled out statewide and um, we were the first city in the world to have this and it's now you know, rolling out across, across the world. So I guess that we do have to have conversations mm. like, like that often, um, but where there are, yeah, but there are still a lot of blockers um, in order for us to get further towards our, our renewable energy targets, which I think is 25% in the next few years. Um, talking with our energy providers and city power has been a long time coming. I know that when I was very, you know, first elected in, in 2008, you know, I was told what was the, you know, what would be the number one thing that we could change to accelerate action on climate change and it was getting city power to come and talk to us about getting access to the grid. And still, we're still having the conversation. I know it's moved forward and, and we're getting um, on the, you know, we're getting on, but it's, you know, those sort of conversations and um, mm. that are, Long constant, and either. So I mean, we had this conversation on Thursday night. You know, what would be the impact in Melbourne if the if the uh, agreement with the if COP21 doesn't go as well as we'd like? I mean, sure, cities like ours will continue to find ways around the barriers to to um, realise our targets and and our vision for our city. But it would make it a whole lot easier <laughs> if we could, uh, you know, decarbonise our electricity system a lot quicker. Victoria, so. Um, Let's assume that we get an agreement at COP mm -hmm. in Paris, COP21. Mm -hmm. It won't be, as you say, it won't be perfect, but it will be something. Yep. What happens mm -hmm. after that? What, what are the important things that will need to take place yeah, to, sure. to keep, the, keep the thing going? So I mentioned the number one thing is getting commitments to cut pollution. Um, so countries have already, and this is the big innovation that happened since climate change in the negotiations, uh, since Copenhagen in the negotiations, is... Um, is getting countries to put up their targets early. So they're called INDCs, in, uh, Intentionally Nationally Determined Contributions. And so any country puts up and says, this is what we're prepared to do. Uh, and there will be, there's a sort of an agreement that we know lobbying about that at the COP. Countries will not be putting pressure on each other around that. Uh, but what we will be doing, and sorry, I should note, that's not enough. As it is, uh, we've got the majority of contributions now and it adds up to an equivalent temperature, global temperature rise of 2.7 degrees. Um, so that's um, the end of the Great Barrier Reef. That's um, pretty much the end of the majority of agriculture through the Murray-Darling Basin. It's significant sea level rise. It's hundreds of millions of climate refugees. Um, it's, it's not a good news not, story. Not a solution. No. So that's not the end point. Uh, but what what is crucial out of this negotiation is the process. We recognise there is no way all countries are going to put up enough at this point in time, but this is a moving feast and it's moving rapidly. As I mentioned before, that momentum from business and investors and technological development is happening rapidly and that will inspire change as we move. So how do we create a process and, and a... Um, 
a framework that actually enables that feedback loops to speed that up over time. So we're looking for a commitment to that process and key within that will be the goal, like what, how far are we willing to cut pollution long term? And then what we're calling uh, five-year review cycles. So that every five years, every country is required to come back and explain their target and justify it. You're not required to increase it. Um, potentially your, your target is strong enough as it is, but you will be required in that international um, diplomacy space to justify it. And that will be how it's essentially a ratchet up mechanism where every five years we can tighten this and tighten this. And the uh, intention is that it grows exponentially uh, at that point. So that's the, that's the number one mm. long-term goal five-year mechanism, and then climate finance. How do we get that money on the table to make this possible for so many of these countries? We sort of know how to do that with public finance, and then the issue is just getting governments to commit. Um, what we don't have such a great process around is unleashing um, private finance within that space. And there are a lot of companies who have a lot of money, uh, well in excess of many of the governments we're talking about, who are interested in investing. So how do we actually allow that to happen in the mechanism so that we can be inviting those countries to be part of the, uh, those companies to be part of the process and driving it in a positive way? Uh, because there are a lot of companies who do want to do a lot of really good things. Um, the challenge is our government, the Australian government, is very, very interested in that side of the climate finance. And there are a lot of companies who want to make a lot of money, particularly in developing countries. Our Prime Minister, I think, has a history in merchant banking, so oh, it's that's, probably... That's, yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, so we are excited about that, yeah, and that's good, yeah. that's great. Mm. It's very hard for companies to fund adaptation measures. Companies find it harder to see a rate of return on helping poor communities develop sustainable water systems or to move from land that's been inundated with sea level rise, which is happening already. I mean, we, we are currently already have Australian residents who are climate change refugees from the Torres Strait whose lands have been inundated and are no longer viable. Uh, so resettling these communities, uh, and um, which is going to be necessary, but assisting others to adapt, much harder. So we still need that, that pr uh, public finance as well. And they're going to be some of the real touchstone issues. Oh, no, I was just going to bring it back to cities because yeah, yeah, yeah. it's all about cities. No, yeah, that course. I think that but one of the important reasons why cities need to be recognised as a key player yeah. but it, it, in the capacity building and the technology transfer and in the finance is in the cities where sea level rise is, a, is an issue. And I guess I was just looking at Steve only because I know that he spent a lot of time in, in our Pacific Island countries and cities um, helping them to adapt and, and in terms of finance there has been significant contribution from people like the Rockefeller Foundation and even Bloomberg with his commitment to cities recognising that we do need to invest a lot of money now in these spaces and, and I'm very proud of the work that cities are playing with each other It's just getting access to larger funds of, of money can't just be put on the philanthropic sector.